Holiness is what you want from me. Thank you, Miss Patience, for that. For leading us in worship, and thank you all. Good morning. Once again, I am Marcus Nobles. Um, I am the RUF campus pastor at Alabama A&M, and also have the pleasure of being the pastoral intern here at the Village Church, which means that I'm like the assistant to the regional manager, right? Um, and every now and then, I have the unique pleasure of stepping in here in this pulpit, um, which is an opportunity that I don't take lightly to stand here in this place and deliver and to deliver God's word to God's people. As you all are well aware, we've been working through the book of Hosea, and I'm really glad that Alex has done all the heavy lifting in the first 13 chapters. Um, and he kind of lobbed me up an alley-oop and left me with chapter 14. When he first told me that um, I had to preach today, um, he told me just to preach whatever I had already worked up. And then he came back and said, hey, would you finish Hosea for me? And initially I was like, yeah. And if you can remember over the past few weeks, some very real, very hard, very thunderous language that we've seen in this prophecy in Hosea. And now as we've come to the end, I'm actually gracious that Alex has um, uh, tasked me with preaching chapter 14 because it kind of wraps up the previous 13 chapters in such a way that has a completely different tone than the thunderous voice of prophecy in those first 13 chapters. So Hosea here is one of the, the minor prophets, minor only in the sense that this book is a short one. Um, and he's one of these prophets who I like to think of as God's radio system. Anybody listen to a radio recently? Yeah. God is the one doing the broadcasting of the signal, and the prophet is the one who takes that broadcast and then sends it to the people. 
kind of like the middleman in between. So God's people are the ones that are listening, but the prophet is the one that is the actual radio. He's receiving this signal and then giving it to the people. And for 200 years, God had been warning his people here in this northern kingdom. Um, He has sent one prophet after another over and over again because that's who God is. He's this long-suffering God. And they had fallen so far away from God and had turned their back on him. We see this story played out in 2 Kings. um, And Hosea is called to speak on God's behalf as a prophet to this northern kingdom, uh, a.k.a. Ephraim, who he refers to them as. Um, and this is after they had broken away from southern Judah. Um, Hosea starts, if you remember, all the way way back when, when Alice was preaching through chapter 1 with his broken marriage to his wife Gomer. And how God tells Hosea to go after his adulterous wife and still be faithful to her. And it points to this very real picture of uh, this prophetic symbol of God's relationship with Israel. God has been the faithful husband, and Israel has been the adulterous wife. Just as God tells Hosea to do whatever it takes to go and get his wife, God is also willing to do the same, to do whatever it takes to get Israel back. Why is God so willing to do this? It's because God is the one who brought them out of Egypt and made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And even though the people have broken the covenant and have begun to worship idols and other gods, in this adulterous type of way, he, God, will not end his covenant. He will renew it. Not because they deserve it, but because of his character. Because of who God is. His love and his compassion and his faithfulness. This is who God is. And Hosea goes on to spell out the consequences of Israel's actions against God in these previous 13 chapters. And he tells them of their imminent defeat by other nations and their ultimate exile. And like I said, those previous chapters use some really graphic language to describe what God is actively doing to this nation, not just allowing, but actively doing as consequence to their actions in turning against him. And then all these warnings point uh, for them to return to God, to return to him. God says that I'm still the Lord, your God from the land of Egypt. I knew you in the wilderness before you were even a nation. I brought you out. Hosea is begging to these people to remember, to repent, to come back home. And here in chapter uh, 14, it wraps up the theme of the entire book that Israel um, has rebelled against God and that there are severe consequences. But God's love and mercy are more powerful than the depths of Israel's sinfulness. And Hosea lays out this path that will lead Israel back into covenant relationship with their God. And that brings us here to chapter 14. Let's look at it once more. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses And we will say no more, our God, to the works of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily and take roots like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like the trees of Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me your fruit comes. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. This is the word of God. I do believe it's true. The grass may wither, the flowers of may fade away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we come to you humbly once again to say thank you for being our God. And just like here, 
in Hosea chapter 14. Thank you for choosing us always to be your people. Father, help us to hear the words of this your scripture and for them to be written deeply on the tablets of our hearts. Remind us, O God, of who you are and of whose we are. And that no matter what comes in this life, that we can always turn back to you. That we can come home. That we can repent and find grace and love and mercy that never ends in you and in you alone. This and all things we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So folks, today uh, we don't have a long or fancy sermon. Um, And thankfully I finished my sermon before the football games last night. So you won't hear any fancy quips. Um, I'm an Auburn fan and I'm still upset. That's okay. We'll live to fight another year. So here we are in Hosea 14. And again, this chapter wraps up everything that we've heard in the previous 13 chapters and puts a nice little bow on it and points Israel, this broken and fallen nation, back to their God. And here Hosea lays out this roadmap of repentance that leads to a hope for them. Amen? And the first step on that roadmap is for Israel to come back home to God. Hosea 14, uh, verse 1, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Return. O Israel. Step one for them is to turn around. Amen? To turn around from what they had been doing before and turn back to this God who never left them. I think last time that I was here in this pulpit, I told you all some of my story about how um, I wound up having heart surgery at a young age. And as I was laid out on the table, this uh, surgeon told me, son, whatever you're doing, you should probably stop. You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be on my table. I shouldn't be doing this surgery for you, right? And at a young age, that was the first time in my life that I felt like God was talking directly to me. Son, stop. Whatever it is that you're doing, stop. And it seems like Israel is in that same boat right here. After 13 chapters of Hosea, after hundreds of years of rebelling, prophet after prophet being sent to them and ignored, Hosea is begging to them, stop, turn around. You know, it's funny, you can't get out of a hole if you keep digging it, right? Anybody in here ever dug a deep hole before? And you get to a point where if you keep digging, you're not ever going to get out, right? You'll just be throwing dirt on yourself and actually burying yourself in the same hole that you just dug, right? So the first stop, the first step, the first way for them to lead themselves down this road to real repentance is to stop and to turn around. To turn from their sinful, wicked ways and face back towards God. To stop digging the hole. When I lived in Mobile, my pastor, Scott Moore, had this wonderful analogy that he would use all the time of a pastor And I grew up um, going back and forth to a small little farming town right outside of Union Springs, Alabama. Anybody know where Bullock County is? Of course you don't. No one does. It's in the middle of nowhere, right? And on our family's farm, there's lots and lots of acres, and our family used to raise cattle. And so this analogy always stuck with me because Scott would give this analogy of a green pasture, right? And on the edges of that pasture would be fence. And just like when I was a kid growing up, we would put fences on the edge of our pasture so that the cattle couldn't get out, right? And that fence that we would put up, it wasn't a happy fence. It was made out of barbed wire. Anybody ever seen barbed wire before? Yeah? And if you rub up against barbed wire, it's not a fun experience, right? Right? Yeah. It'll do something to you. And the middle line of that barbed wire was something that we called hot wire that would be attached to a battery, and if you touched it, it would shock you, right? And it's a great deterrent to keep some things out of the pasture, and it's also a great way to keep some things in. And it's interesting, growing up raising cattle and seeing this barbed wire fence, 
you would notice that the older cattle would never be anywhere near the fence. It would always be the young, stubborn, rebellious bull that would be close to the fence, right? And it was always interesting because inside of the pasture was everything that the cattle would ever need. The grass was there. There's a beautiful pond there filled with water. You know, there's trees and there's shade for them to rest. Everything that they could possibly want is right there in the middle of the pasture. But lo and behold, there's always that one rebellious bull that would be on the edge. And when he got to the edge of that pasture, he would come up against that barbed wire and that hot wire in the middle, and he'd find out quickly that there's some struggle there. You guys know what I'm talking about? Likewise, Israel is that young rebellious bull who has left the middle of the pasture where everything is green and is now rubbing up against the turmoil and the pain and the hurt of that barbed wire fence on the edge. And it's interesting, there's nothing stopping them from turning around and going back. The pasture is still green. The pond is still full of water. The tree is still giving shade. Yet they find themselves in this place of pain and destruction, just like Israel has. Why? Because instead of turning and facing inward and coming back to the middle of the pasture where God is, they're out on the edge, on the outskirts, where the barbed wire is. So here, God is waiting for Israel there in the middle of the pasture. And Hosea is begging to them, pleading to them, stop, turn around, go back home. Can you feel the significance in the words here that Hosea, that Hosea uses? Return to the Lord your God. Notice those words there. This is on purpose. Not just the Lord God, not just the Lord a God, the Lord your God. Hosea is telling them here that God never stopped being God. Amen? That he's still yours. Even if you have chosen to now be on the edge of the pasture where the barbed wire is, the Lord your God is still here waiting on you. The middle of the pasture is still green. It's the people that had left and turned away from God. He never left them. Hosea's tone here must have been the same as it was back in the beginning when he was speaking to his adulterous wife. A soft plea to come home. So drastically different from the language that we just read in the previous chapter, which was harsh and gruesome, right? Now look at his tone, soft and loving, pleading with them, begging with them to stop, to turn around and to come home. So step number one, stop what you're doing. Turn around. Step number two of this path is to come with real repentance. Look at verse two. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Notice Hosea doesn't say to take sacrifices. He doesn't say take the things that you found while you were turned away. He doesn't say take with you what, the, uh, what you thought would make you great. He says, take with you your word. Say it with your heart. Repent. Turn to the Lord. This, church, is what real repentance looks like. Real biblical repentance happens from within. There's no external things that can drive it. Amen? It's a change that happens when your mind and your heart are filled with sincerity, not with things. It's a change that happens in your words from your heart. You have to really mean it. He goes on to say, say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept from us what is good, and we will offer the fruit of our lips. One translation says, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. That means instead of paying sacrifices, animal sacrifices like they would have in the past by sacrificing a bull, now we'll sacrifice to you the fruit of our lips. And we won't bring some meaningless sacrifice, 
but we'll praise you and worship you and honor you like we were supposed to. And we'll come with earnest, real, true, repentant love to this Savior that never left. Amen? Hosea tells them to ask God to take away all the iniquity. Ask God to change everything that's not like him. Ask God to remove the evil that's in their hearts and accept what's good from us and we'll praise you. Not with an idol sacrifice, but with the fruit of our lips. We'll say it and really mean it. Look at how deep those words are in this chunk of poetry that is prophecy to these people. Verse 3, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Here, Hosea is telling them to turn away from all the things that, that they have placed before God. Assyria and Egypt and their carved idols. Remember in previous weeks when Alex was when 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 Pastor Alex was teaching us how Israel had turned from God and was putting their trust in the government. Right? They felt like they didn't need God anymore because they had this Assyrian government now. So they had turned away from God and they had placed all of their hope falsely in this government. The same government that would then turn around and annihilate them. Remember in earlier weeks when Pastor Alex was telling us that his, that, that here the northern kingdoms of Israel had placed all of their hope in the military might and the horses that Egypt could bring. And so now we don't need God anymore because we have this strong army that can protect us. And at the end, it's that same army that came and overwhelmed them. Remember when Pastor Alice was teaching us how they had a marketplace filled with idols? that they had carved with their own hands and they had this beautiful workmanship and then they would go to the market and sell false idols and then instead of worshiping God, they would worship this thing that they bought and sold and traded like a transaction. The work of their hands. Here Hosea is telling them, go to God earnestly and repent Turn from your evil ways and renounce these things that you've placed before God. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the works of our hands. He's telling them that it's in God that the orphan Israel finds a home. It's in God that the orphan Israel finds a father. It's in God that the orphan Israel finds love and finds mercy. Look at this poetic language that's on purpose to show that God is the one that's adopting Israel. Not these things that they've placed their false hope in. Not Assyria, not the horses, not these false idols that they sell and buy. It's God who chooses them. It's God who adopts them. It's God who loves them. Even when they've turned their back. Even when they choose something else. Verse 3 is so short and so simple because it doesn't need to be long and elegant. It sums up all of the previous 13 chapters. And in such a poetic and simple way that the people that were reading it would have understood exactly what it meant. Because of all the thunderous tone of the previous 13 chapters of prophecy and because of pleas in like, uh, like in chapter 6, this one verse speaks so loudly in such a hushed, quiet tone. Hosea is pleading with Israel, come back home. He's pleading with them, come to real repentance. And look, he's pleading with them to confess their sin. Read that verse one more time and tell me that that doesn't look like a confession of sin. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more, our God, to 
to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. What a beautiful and complete confession of all of their sinfulness. All of the sinfulness of the previous 13 chapters wrapped up beautifully in this small, simple, poetic verse. And now let's look at God's response to that turning and that repenting and that confession of sin. It's evident here in verse 4 that now God is speaking. Listen to God's response. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like the trees of Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Isn't it amazing that more than half of the chapter is filled with God's loving response to the people's turning from their sin and confession thereof? Did y'all catch that? More than half of this chapter is God's loving response to his children turning from their sinful wickedness and confessing their sins. In one verse of confession, we get five verses of assurance. I don't think y'all really caught that. In one verse of confession, in three short lines of confession, God pours out five whole verses of beautiful, poetic acceptance and assurance that I will heal them, that I will love them, that I will be like all of these things to them. He says, I will heal their apostasy, their waywardness, their disloyalty. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. God says that he will heal them from their adulterous behavior. The Hebrew word here literally translates to backsliding or turning away. And God says that he will heal it. Catch this. This poetic wording is on purpose. He doesn't say that he'll overlook it. He doesn't say that he'll put a Band-Aid on it. He doesn't say that he'll just pretend that it doesn't exist. He says that he'll heal it. Church, I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels as though my sinfulness is so deep that it can't be fixed. Sometimes it feels as though my brokenness is so deep that nothing can cure it. But look at God's loving response to his children. Immediately, right away, as soon as they turn from their sinfulness and and confess their sin, God's immediate response is, I will heal your apostles. Not I will cover it up. Not I'll make it look better. But I'll heal it so that it's not broken anymore. God wants to heal the relationship. Look at his character on display. All that he wants is to heal what's broken. Even though this northern kingdom did not deserve it church even though we don't deserve it even though I don't deserve it God wants to heal what's broken in chapter 5 verse 13 the people thought that they could vindicate the cure for the nations in sickness by going to Assyria but Assyria could not heal them Hosea pleads with them to God in chapter 6 for healing. And in chapter 7, he says that the healing that they need could not come to them until they brought their guilt out into the open and acknowledged it. And look what happens here in chapter 14. The moment that they confess their sins, God says, I will heal it. 
And then he says, I will love them freely, without bounds, without limits. God's response to real repentance is to heal what's broken and then to love you freely. Church, no one does that but God. No one does that but God. To heal the broken relationship and then still love you freely. That's God's response to Israel's confession of sin. That's God's assurance of pardon. It's to heal and love freely. God's response to them turning back to him is to turn his anger away. God's response to them coming away from the edge of the pasture back into the green is to turn his anger away from them. And look, it gives them a love that makes them whole. Amen? That's been the whole point in Pastor Alex's sermons for the past few weeks is that Hosea points us to this love that's unlike any other love because this is the only love that can truly make us whole, that can heal us and then love us freely. Look at verse 5. God continues to pour out even more loving kindness. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root in the trees of Lebanon. His roots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like the trees of Lebanon. There are some deep poetic metaphors here. God says that he'll be like the dew to Israel. Anybody ever been camping before? No? That's all right. After years in the military, one of my favorite things to do was field training exercises. And when when we would go on an FTX, we'd hop on a helicopter wherever we were and go somewhere to train. And then we'd be out in the woods for like three days, right? And I hadn't done a lot of camping when I was young, so I had to learn real fast. One of the first things that I learned is if you go camping and you're out in the woods and you set up a campsite at night, when you wake up in the morning, there is this dew that is pervasive. It's everywhere, right? And if you didn't secure your gear and if you didn't cover everything, the dew would. It would literally cover everything. Everything would be wet with the morning dew. Nothing would be spared from it. Right? As far as as our eyes could see or as far as our feet could march, there would be dew every morning. Listen to the poetic language that Hosea is using here. God says, I will be like the dew to Israel. I will cover them every morning. As far as their eye can see, everything that they own, everything that they own, I'll touch like the dew in the morning. Church, how big is that? Look at God's infinite loving kindness to his people. He says, I will be like the dew that spreads out and reaches everywhere. And then he says that because I'll be the dew, that there'll be blossoms. That they'll be nourished by this love that I provide to everything. And they'll grow and be beautiful like blossoms. He says that they'll be like the cedars of Lebanon. Anyone ever seen a Lebanese cedar? No? <coughs> For thousands of years, they've called it the king of trees. This Lebanese cedar grows in such a way that it's maybe 8 to 10 feet across and 120 feet high. It's a massive tree. And out of its trunk grows several branches. And the branches don't grow out, they grow up. So this tree reaches up to heaven. And it's a massive evergreen pine. It's unmistakable. And at this point in human history, these trees were pervasive. They were everywhere. Right? 
And they were considered incredibly valuable because they would emit this pleasant odor. And in the warm summers, their shade was unmistakable because the tree is 10 feet wide and 120 feet tall. So the shade that it provides is massive. And every single branch produces this strong, pleasant odor that would literally fill the air. And they called it the perfume of Lebanon. If you went into the city, you would smell this beautiful, aromatic fragrance that would almost be overwhelming. Look at this poetic language that he uses here. That they will blossom like the lilies and that they will take root like the trees of Lebanon. Imagine what that must have felt like to these people who were hearing this assurance of pardon. That because we've turned away, even though we have been the ones who treated God like an adulterous wife, even though we ran from him, even though we left and he never did, he will love us so and be like dew upon us that will blossom like flowers and then will take root like this massive tree that produces something that's ultimately beautiful. That even when it can't be seen, it can be felt and smelt for miles and miles around. This is beautiful poetic language. A few sermons ago, I talked about an olive tree. You guys remember that? And how when an olive tree grows, it grows shoots all around it. And the amazing thing about an olive plant is that the fruit of the tree doesn't have to come from the tree. It can come from the shoots. So the tree grows and the shoots grow and the fruit is pervasive and there's olives everywhere. Imagine how this deeply poetic language must have hit to these ancient Near East people as they read this beautiful assurance of pardon, this outpouring of God's love that he will be like the dew in the morning and cover everything and that we will be like the blossoms and that we will plant roots like this massive pervasive tree that smells so fragrant and fills up all of the air and that we'll have shoots that grow out that produce fruit. Look at God's loving kindness here. This deeply poetic language. Look at how much God loves his people. And look, verses 7 and 8, even more, even more loving kindness. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. I've spoken to you guys before about what it means to dwell, right? Who do you let dwell in your house? Not just anybody. Someone that you love, someone that you have deep, intimate connection with, someone that you have relationship with. God is saying here that I will heal our relationship in such a way that not only will you have all these things, but you will dwell in my shadow. (sighs) How big is that? Look at how much loving kindness God is pouring out on his people that they will flourish like the grain and they shall blossom like the vine and their fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. God tells them that he will heal them and that he will love them and that he will make them whole and that he will be ever present like the dew and they will blossom and grow and spread out and be fragrant and be pleasant and that when they turn back to him that they can dwell in his shadow and flourish. He tells them that he's not like the idols that they've made. Look at verse 8. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like the evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. He tells them that he will answer them and that he will look after them forever. And that he will provide. Amen? Here we see God pouring out his character, his divine pathos, his emotion, his loving kindness. He's pouring it out on his people. 
this profound and beautiful expression of God's affection to his people, this love and kindness and grace that goes far beyond anything we could ever muster. This is a love that makes us whole. Amen? This is the heart of God. This love can only be found in real relationship with our creator. Church, what does that have to do with us? How often have we been the rebellious ones? How often have we been the ones to turn away from our God? How many times have we put something else before him? How many times has he reached out to us and we didn't listen? That same God that pours out on them is the same God that loves us. Amen? It's the same God that gave his son Jesus so that we too can experience this type of love that makes us whole. This love that heals our backsliding. This love that will be like the dew that covers everything. This love that is like a warm, beautiful fragrance that can fill our whole life. This love that will never, that will always cover us like the shade of an evergreen. This love that will never end. Amen? It's this love that makes us whole, that heals us. Not just puts a band-aid on, but heals us. We are like the northern kingdom. I'll wait so it really sticks in. We are like the northern kingdom. And praise God that we can still turn from our wickedness. Praise God that we can still come back home to our God. That's an amen statement. We are like the northern kingdom in the midst of our sinfulness. We can bring him the fruit of our lips. We, like the northern kingdom, can still repent and be assured of our pardon and find grace and mercy that only our God can provide. There's still hope. There's still grace. There's still love. There's still joy. There's still mercy that overflows. Praise God that from the rising of the golden sun into the setting of the same, his love makes us whole. Praise God that by that morning by morning, his love never fails us. Amen? Praise God that it never runs out. It never gives up. Praise God that the love that makes us whole gives us mercy that endures forever. That we are his and that he is ours. One more verse. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the upright walk in him, the upright walk in them, but the transgressors stumble in them. Church, turn from your transgressors. Turn from your apostasy. Turn from your wickedness. Turn from your sinfulness. And face this God who never left. This God who remains ours. Go to him with real repentance. Confess your sins. And look at how much love he will pour out on you. Just like he did to the northern kingdom. That same God is still ours. Amen. Father God, we come to you humbly once more.
saying thank you for being our God. Thanking you for pouring out on us your deep loving kindness. Father, we are so grateful for the words that you've left behind in this book, Hosea, that can challenge us with thunderous graphic language and then wrap us in deep loving kindness that comes only from the Savior, only from a God who is ours, who loves us and pours out a love that will make us whole. Thank you, God, for being our Father, for adopting us just like you adopted this orphan Israel. Thank you for bringing us in and accepting us, accepting what is good in us despite all of the bad that we bring along. Thank you for being a good, good Father. Father, help us to again, write these words deeply on the tablets of our hearts. And as we go forth from this place, remind us that it is your love that covers us like the dew in the morning. It's your love that makes us whole. It's this in all things we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing our closing song.
Before I give our benediction, I'd just like to ask if you all would please pray for my family. Our grandmother is has been hospitalized um, and looks critical. If you could please, please pray for her. She's on my heart very heavily. Now for our benediction um, from Hosea 14, verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but the transgressors stumble in them. See you, Philip. Amen. Parents, don't forget, Village Kids, we have practice here. We'll be about five minutes. We'll meet up here on um, the front row. Thank you.